0: The following program has some naughty language, so if you are listening to this near little ears, make sure they have little earbuds, but you may also want to distract them. I suggest shadow puppets. It's Tuesday, May 17th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I did read the Buffalo Shooter's 180-page manifesto, and you know what's wrong with that? No, not that I did it. I'm a newsman. I need to be informed that I said the word manifesto. I mean, according to the AP Stylebook, we don't use the term manifesto in reference to a racist diatribe. It glorifies racist hatred. Other terms such as diatribe, screed, or writings can work instead. I mean, they can. There's a whole lot of less specific words to that specific type of writing that can be used. Glorify, I think it just describes. I have noticed in this, as with many other tragedies, words come into play quite early, Right after details of the shooting emerged, I saw online, this one website I go to called Twitter, people just demanding that the New York Times and other news organizations say, don't just say that he was inspired by right-wing theories. Say Tucker Carlson. Who specifically you must say Tucker Carlson? This is directed at the New York Times which recently published a book length series of articles pointing the finger at Tucker Carlson. I don't think that one publication is reluctant to name names when that name is Tucker Carlson. But what happens in these situations is what happens in all situations where things are a little bit out of control and there's only so much we can do. We retreat to the comfort and maybe the power of words. We invoke them like a spell, an incantation. We, to some extent, hope that they will protect us. I've been noticing this. This is something I do. I don't say the names of the shooters. And why? Well, I read studies indicating that this might inspire more shooters. With the Columbine shooters, those names were out there so much, and they did get cited and inspired others. And you would think if the names of those two shooters, notice me not saying them to this day, if those were out there less, maybe there'd be fewer shootings. And I've noticed, and you probably have, that this has been widely adopted by the media. And I have to say, I don't know that it's working. I mean, we can't run the experiment where we go back 10 or 12 years and just said the words of every shooter. But if we did, would we have more shootings? It seems to me that the kind of people who want to or are drawn to get radicalized on right-wing sites that don't care not just about saying the words or names of shooters, but don't care about publishing the manifestos of shooters, people are gonna find out those sites. So I do what I can, I suppose, in the name of holding on to a vestige of being able to do anything. One thing that we in the media, and this one side I go to, Twitter, do not hesitate in engaging in after an act of terror is being terrorized, is letting the terrorist simply set the agenda. So in the last two days, oh my, have I seen so many debates about replacement theory. Really, we now have to discuss this? I guess we do. I'm not against debates, as you know. I like a debate. I just kind of wish a portion of the debate could focus on guns, firearms, but any discussion about addressing the problem of guns Yeah, that's not going anywhere fast, which is a fact that isn't new, and therefore, that is not the discussion that comes to define the news. What we are talking about is this virulent racist replacement theory, which by the way isn't going to abate or subside either, but at least there's some novelty to it, and the demand that we discuss it has been put on the table by an 18-year-old killer driven by ignorance as seen in his, let's call it something other than a manifesto. A protective word around that, that's at least one problem we can solve. On the show today, a series of New York Times articles seeks to convey threats and dangers. I think they may be doing too good a job. But first, Dr. Walter Kimbrough is the president of Dillard University, the New Orleans-based historically black college. Kimbrough is a fervent evangelist for his university, his style of education, and his ideals of which... One is the value of free speech. I've been doing some First Amendment coverage, and as such, I came across the name a few times of Walter Kimbrough, and I recognized that name, oh, from reading about him, from listening to him on Malcolm Gladwell's podcast, and then I realized we actually had a personal connection and go back over a quarter century. You'll hear about that as Dr. Kimbrough and I speak about speech next. Next. So as you know, if you've been listening to the show, I've been, well, since its inception, been very interested in free speech issues. And recently, the issue of the free speech zones on college campuses came up, and I was interested to find that in the state of Georgia... A law was passed to eliminate free speech zones and, in effect, acknowledging that all of America, including college campuses, are a free speech zone. And I talked to you about the interesting politics where every Democrat in the state house voted against it. Every Republican voted for it. The bill was written by a group called ALEC. In doing my research, I came across a fascinating figure, Dr. Walter Kimbrough, who is the president, the outgoing president of Dillard University, who has... A really interesting take on free speech zones, free speech on campus, the value of free speech, and a little bit about Dillard University. It's a historically black institution. I'll read to you from the description that they put forward a historically black institution that cultivates leaders who live ethically, think and communicate precisely, and act courageously to make the world a better place. It's located in New Orleans. Dr. Kimbrough, welcome to the gist. Thank you, I appreciate it. So let's first talk about free speech zones, then broaden it out. You're a private private university, correct? Right. So any state law wouldn't affect you, but I know Louisiana has looked at the law and other states have. It's maybe a little complex, Uh, politically, based on who's sponsoring the laws, but in general or in specific, do you have a take on free speech zones on a college campus?
1: Yeah, so I think the, the spirit of those policies is that there should be free speech on college campuses, but if you have a place for that to happen, then you don't disrupt the overall operations of the campus. So I think most of the time when campuses do that, it's like we do value it, but you don't want it where people say, well, I have free speech so I can just go into X person's classroom and just start being disruptive because then that's another issue. So I think the goal really is just to provide that opportunity, but to make sure there are appropriate places and time. And part of the the rules of most college campuses say that you can control place and time. So this makes it a little bit interesting then if you're saying, well, there are no free speech zones. How then do you manage so that you still have civility on campus, you know, during your regular course of business? Mm -hmm. And so, how do you? I mean, does Dillard have free speech zones? No, we don't. That hasn't really been an issue for us in terms of providing that um, students have that opportunity or anyone on campus. Um, So it hasn't been that kind of sort of political issue. I mean, I went to to University of Georgia undergrad. I remember there was a stage where you'd have the people come and they'd come preach. You know, the fire and brimstone sermons that on the free speech plaza at Georgia. Um, So you see it more places like that. I think as a part of our community that's closer knit, that really hasn't been our issue. Mm-hmm. I have seen you quoted in Chronicle of Higher Education, and I think the AJC, talking in
0: general about how free speech zones can, and in some instances, have suppressed free speech. In other words, if it's outside the zone, you can't speak freely. And this uh, gives college administrators leeway to say, uh-uh, that speech will not be going on uh, at, at this university, at this place.
1: Right. No, I like I said, I, I think that um, there should be opportunities for people to engage in really good, sometimes heated discussions. I think that's a part of higher education. I think what's happened over the last maybe five or six years is that it's become much more combative. And so everybody's just yelling or they're just saying, I don't like this speaker. I'm going to shout them down. And that's it. It, that, That becomes more of a problem. So the ACLU's concern, not that it
0: mattered because it became law, is that in the way that the law was drawn. There would be no free speech zones. That happens to be the case. And others couldn't shout the speaker down. There were um, there was language in the law that says that said others on the campus couldn't disrupt uh, speakers who were engaged in free speech. And the ACLU said, well, we're worried about the right of the counter-protesters or the so-called disruptors. If you don't define what a disruption is with things like decibel levels or something else empirical, you might be infringing on the rights of the counter-demonstrators. I was suspicious of this logic, but tell me what you think of it.
1: Yeah, I'm not I'm not in favor of that either, because I think that I think there should still be a time and place for counter uh, protest. But if you're going to have free speech, you still have to hear the speech that you don't agree with. It's just like, nope, I don't because it it can go both ways. And and normally it hasn't happened like that on college campuses. So it's normally and, and I'm a radical liberal, but. You know, if you have a Charles Murray on a campus, people want to shout down a Charles Murray. I'm like, OK, so what happens then when they start shouting down Cornell West? Because I'm going to be pissed off about that. That's sort of what happened. to Nicole Hannah Jones, the people at North Carolina said, nope, she's too controversial. So they didn't hire her. It, it cuts both ways. So I'm like, no, you need to if you disagree with that argument, you should at least hear that argument so that you can make a better argument. And that the answer is not. Note what they're saying is too problematic. Let's just shout it down because that does cut both ways. And when they start shouting down the people that you like, you're going to get mad about that. So I'm I'm not in favor of that you have to hear that speech and then you can still have a counter protest or have a have a forum where both sides get to debate it. I think that's the way to do it. But just to say counter protesters have the right then to be disruptive, I think is problematic. Yeah, because that is getting in the way of the
0: ideal and the law that we're talking about, which is free speech. Yeah. So if I were to say, and I know you know this, but uh, at this point, maybe a listener would say, well, Mike, put out a hypothetical. Say, what about this? Think of a horrible speaker. Would you have him on your campus? And the one that would come to mind, maybe to some listeners, what about David Duke? Would the president of a black university have David Duke on campus? And in fact, that exactly happened. Could you tell me a little bit
1: about the circumstances of that? It exactly it did happen. So um, we've hosted number of debates, the history of Diller, We have a great location. We've hosted mayoral debates, gubernatorial debates. So this was a Senate debate. And there were rules that were set for people to qualify for the Senate. It was sponsored by a local television station. So all they did was rent the space. And they had had a previous debate the week before David Duke decided to run for Senate. Everybody knew he wasn't going to win. He knew he wasn't going to win. But he's starting to see these other people pop up, you know, Richard Spencer's and Milo Yiannopoulos. And he's like, wait a minute, let me get back in the game here. You know, people are forgetting about me, you know. And so he decides he's going to run for Senate. He doesn't right. qualify. But this is the only time that he qualified for the debate because you right. had to have at least the rule 3%. was there was you had to poll at like five right. percent. He barely he was got it. This, yeah. The only time in all of the polling. If you did an average of polls, he never would have made it. So I'm a conspiracy theorist on that. I was like, yep. It's like, what kind of headline do you have? Former Klan leader speaks at an HBCU. It's great TV, which is exactly what happened. And so when we heard about it, You know, I was talking to our board and they were just like, nope, do not cancel. And personally, I didn't feel like we should either. Oh, the board said do not cancel. They
0: said do not. Because they wanted the, because it's prestigious to have the Senate debate. Or did they say do
1: not cancel based on we want to stand for free speech? It's prestigious. And particularly board members who were alums said, this is what we've done at Dillard. So they were telling me when David Duke led the Klan in the 70s, The university invited him to speak. Now this is during the height of the black power movement and the students then were like, yeah, we want to hear what you have to say. Come on, bring it. We want to, so that was the right spirit. That's, I mean, they're saying like, you're the leader of the Klan, come to our black campus and let's hear what you have to say now. That was exciting to me that that was the mentality. So from that perspective, they said, don't do it. Our legal counsel said, don't do it because you don't have a clause in your contract to cancel it just because you don't like who's coming. It's not your event anymore. You rented out the space. So he gets to come. So but I've always believed in free speech as well. So, you know, people were upset. We had people protest. They tried to disrupt it. And I was like, you're being irrational. There were six people debating for an hour in an empty auditorium on campus. There was nobody even there. So why are you so upset that this man? He could have come on campus for some other event and you would not have even known it. So it was to me, it was performative. in in all of it when people were just being upset I was like y'all are being performative because after he left the whole thing died down and nobody else said anything else about it so it just you know it wasn't to me it wasn't um, authentic in terms of people's you know concern if they had one
0: do you think there's a generational divide on this i mean obviously it was the undergraduates who are upset by it but do you think i mean people of our generation which is say 50 plus
1: i think agree with us but people uh, in But the it 20s really maybe it don't. even wasn't undergrads because our student government had a counter they had a watch party in another location where most of the students were most of the people who came were not our students. They were off-campus people. There was a local group that got into it with Duke a couple of months earlier about some of the, the Civil uh, Civil War monuments that were in town. So mm-hmm. that was the people who came to start the trouble. They were, they were upset with him, and so they, they brought the beef to campus. So it really wasn't generated so much. We had students who participated, but they were a fraction of the people who were protesting. Let me read to you and let this stand in for a typical
0: argument that is made in a case like this. Some students, I don't know if it was signed by specific students or organization, did uh, say this. Dr. Kimbrough, you are the president of a historically black college whose mere presence is anathema to everything David Duke promotes. Instead of denying the presence of this terrorist on our campus, you have assured his say by Dillard against us, your Dillard University student body. We write to you today, not only to express our hurt and shame, but also to fight for our ancestors and their struggles. How dare this administration stand for Duke's safety and not fight for our security and right to learn in a healthy space. And I hear that the tension between the safety of the learners at the institution and free speech itself. Do you think that's a legitimate concern?
1: Or, I mean, before you were talking about being performative. That was performative. Mm -hmm. This was a small group of students. It wasn't our student government association. As I said, they held an event that had a lot of students there. This was a small group of students influenced by an adjunct faculty member who was a part of the group that led the real protest. Mm. So that's what that was. It was very, and we had conversations with this group of students afterwards and we said well what are the kinds of things that you want to have so we met with them and they said well here are some issues we want on campus we provided all of that and then they didn't even take advantage of the stuff that we provided they were performative too so it just has to be called out that they performed, they got hyped up by these off campus people you guys should speak out about it and then the, the adjunct faculty member after everything went down somebody who had my number if it was truly a security issue she could have texted me and say hey i need to talk to you about this instead she lets it blow up and then a couple days later she texted me and said my bad mm. performative it was performative <laughs> so we're gonna tell the whole story they performed on that but it's like where is the you know people are saying oh the clan's gonna be on campus when's the last time you seen a significant clan presence anywhere. So now you're you don't even understand history. And then when I tell them, well, David Duke was invited to be on campus in the 70s. What do you have to say about that? I said, and Dillard invited him. I didn't invite him. Dillard invited him. There's no answer to that. Then to top all of that, a past president, of the local NAACP. She died a few years ago. She was the rowdiest person in the city. She met with me that Friday and she said, baby, don't worry about those people acting like that, because when David Duke was on your campus in the 70s, I was here and had lunch with him. It blew my mind because nobody would ever question her. And she was like, I was on the campus because I wanted to challenge him, too. So the mindset has changed where people are saying, yes, David, Duke, we got issues with you, but we're going to debate that with you to now a new generation who doesn't even know who the hell David Duke is or saying, oh, I'm so afraid of David Duke. You don't even know who he is. So stop playing.
0: So if a university administrator for president did the work, and I'm sure you could point to several who have, should they, upon being faced with an objection like you were to the David Duke uh, appearance, you you were firm, you were strong, you just said, nah, that is not the right way to look at it. And I think that I've never, I've not seen that. I've not seen that from other administrators and I wonder if that would be too incendiary or you think that sort of clear statement should be made and maybe it will have an effect on what people think free speech means.
1: Yeah, I mean, once again, it can be and I was firm, but you know, and I had to just remind people, I'm like, look at the range of people that we have invited to campus. I mean, just first of all, I didn't invite this guy, but I believe it's free speech enough that he's going to be here. So I, I'm just not I said, but look at then. look at the people who I bring to campus. These are people that you agree with. So if I'm even if I invited him, the overwhelming majority of people who come to campus are affirming for you. You tell me you can't have, handle somebody who is problematic. I, I don't I don't want you to be that soft. Some people will never, you know, get over that. And that's too bad. But most people realize and I kept telling them. You had students from other campuses, from Tulane, from Xavier, that came to say, we're in solidarity with you. And I told the students two days later, well, if, if I'm such a bad president, where are those people now back on campus supporting you? They're nowhere to be found. I said it was performative. They saw a chance to be on social media, holding up a sign saying we're a dealer protesting David Duke. And after it was over, they went home and then y'all are here dealing with the mess and people are upset. They went home. I said, you can't believe that. I, I was with you before I was with you after when you need the letter of recommendation. I'm the person writing the letter of recommendation when you need X, Y and Z. I'm still that person. And so I, I, if I haven't earned that kind of goodwill, y'all need to get somebody else. And I, even I told our board, I was like, if ever if people felt like this is too disruptive, I will resign right now. I, hmm. I believe in this so much. I will leave over this. And they were like, go sit down somewhere. We're not because we told you the whole way we support <laughs> you on that. But, you know, I wanted them to to make sure that they were and I have a diverse board. I have Jewish members on the board. So I had a number of alums and they all were like, do not counsel, do not counsel. This is the right thing to do. So for me, that was that, too, was really good, because a lot of times the president's out there on their own. And then the board is saying, well, we didn't think you should have done it. So that helped me as well. I think that was a big part of it that I could really stand in my. But I was I told my wife hey if it gets bad and they tell me to leave i'll leave on this this is a hill i'm willing to die on because i believe in if you start and once again it's my emory experience I, I just felt like emory was wrong for canceling Khalid muhammad that was wrong and i don't ever want to be a part of doing something like that walter m
0: kimbrough is the president of dillard university he tweets at hip-hop Prez.
1: Are you, now that you're leaving, is it going to be Hip Hop Express? No, I got to keep it because somebody else will end up stealing my name and I'm going to be mad about it. So <laughs> I'm just, I'm, this is, I'm calling it the intermission. Walter, thanks so much. No problem. Thank you.
0: And now the spiel. I opened my New York Times today, as I do every day, and I was just hit with a crush of depressing, despairing statistics about how dangerous America is for black people. And it is true that the murder rate, life expectancy, and all manner of health outcomes are worse to much worse for African Americans than for Americans of every other ethnicity. There are a couple of articles painting the picture that I want to talk about, however. One was titled Surge in Hate Crimes Against Black People Seen in FBI Data Online. The title was Buffalo Shooting Highlights Rise of Hate Crimes Against African Americans. Nothing's factually wrong with those headlines, but I dove inside the raw data and found some complicating statistics. First of all, hate crimes are up 9% overall. The violent crime rate, which includes murder, assault, robbery, and rape, is up 5%, with murder up tremendously, 30% in 2021. Most hate crimes fall under the rubric of intimidation, which is not a violent crime. In the last full years, where statistics are broken out by race of the offender, we find that white people account for 55% of incidents of hate crimes though they're closer to two-thirds of the population, and that 21% of all hate crime perpetrators are African-American, who constitute just under 14% of the population overall. Even more interesting is another finding buried deep in the data. A large percentage of hate crimes against African-Americans are committed by African-Americans. I didn't crunch all the numbers as a non-data scientist. I don't think I can. So what I did was I looked at some cities, first Boston, because it's a fairly large sample size and it's up early in the alphabet. I mean, this data set has 8,052 hate crimes. So in Boston, there were 323 hate crimes in the year 2020. And of those, 32 were perpetrated by African-American offenders. And by my count, of the 32 where the race of the offender was African-American, the race of the victim was African-American, and 24 of them. I thought this might be because of some odd reporting standard. Indeed, it might. Baltimore had about 150 hate crimes, none perpetrated by Black people against Black people, whereas Middlesex, New Jersey had four total hate crimes, three of which were Black victims and Black assailants. There are also more agencies reporting hate crimes every year. And as the Times notes, certain acts are more likely to be treated as hate crimes than they were in years past. So all makes it less than clear how much white supremacy or even an increase in anti-black sentiment is driving the data. The article also mentions that about a third of historically black colleges received bomb threats this year. Walter Kimbrough, who you just heard, actually testified in Congress about it because Dillard was one of those institutions. But against what standard, I want to know. There is no publicly available database of bomb threats by type of institution. I can understand why. You don't want to encourage such things. So I just began Googling schools. I went through the Ivy League and they were all evacuated over over the last couple of years because of bomb threats. In November of 21, three Ivy League schools were hit with bomb threats. A week later, Yale was hit. The same week, a couple of Ohio universities received bomb threats. Out of curiosity, I googled all the schools in the Big Ten. They've all had bomb threats in the last couple of years except, weirdly, Rutgers which went through a spate of threats in the 70s then decided they were no longer evacuating buildings for bomb threats. They seem to have rethought that to some degree, but it does seem that the New Jersey school downplayed as bomb threats more than their peer institutions. What I'm saying is, it's not that bomb threats aren't happening against historically black colleges. It's definitely nothing like, oh, they shouldn't be taken seriously. The point is, once again, that this one data point, so many bomb threats against these types of institutions, has to be taken within a broader context. And I think the context is that we live in a stupidly violent country full of idiots of all persuasions. Please do not misunderstand me. Hate crimes do seem to be up. Hate crimes against black people do seem to be up. And black people are probably more likely to be targeted last year or in 2020 than they were in the year or two before. I have no reason to think that's not the case. However, violence against black people overwhelmingly comes in the form of in-group violence. That's true with every group. And there, the picture is getting so much demonstrably worse for African Americans, which are already the group most beset by violence. Black people being victimized by white people is still a relatively rare phenomenon, one I do not dismiss, but I just want to contextualize. And by the way, that sentiment is true, it's actually truer, about white people being victimized by black people. It is very rare, despite what entire sections of Breitbart would have you believe. So now we get to another article, this one in the form of a New York Times newsletter penned by David Leonhardt, whose work I've often credited on the show. Headline, The Rights Violence Problem. The Buffalo killings are part of a pattern. Most extremist violence in the U.S. comes from the political right. Again, that's all factually correct. But here's what Leonhardt does. He relies heavily on Anti-Defamation League data, and that shows that right-wing extremists committed about 75% of the killings over the last decade, as opposed to Islamic extremists and left-wing extremists, only 4% out of them. Seems to be true, but once again, a deep dive complicates the picture. By the way, it is absolutely the fact that ISIS or Al-Qaeda-inspired killings are way down over the last 10 years. As far as right-wing killings, well, when you dive in, you find that the picture is muddied. For instance, Leonhart and the ADL count 244 total murders emanating from white supremacists since 2012, not counting the recent killings in Buffalo. But 76 of these murders were committed by prison gangs, which, I mean, that counts, their victims are dead, but I don't know if that is a right-wing problem in a way that we, the unincarcerated, understand or fear it. Additionally, home invasions with no racial motive or necessarily a victim of a different race than the white supremacists are counted for 27 of the 244 murders, domestic violence, which kills, as far as I could tell, only other members of white supremacist families, were 24 of these murders. They even counted an incident where four white supremacists were in a car, argued, drew their weapons, and shot each other. These numbers don't leave me blasé about white supremacist threats, but if we're talking about a bunch of members of Aryan Nation shooting each other, yeah, it seems like that is an example, but also in a way a controlling factor of violent white supremacy. Law enforcement should definitely monitor white supremacists as they monitor other dangerous gangs. Additionally, the 244 white supremacist murders or 333 total right-wing murders, they average a couple dozen a year. This is a country where the CDC counted 24,576 homicides last year. Right-wing extremism, white supremacy, radicalization, bad, troubling, virulent, can spread stipulated. But it's also very, very unlikely that you'll be murdered by a right-wing extremist unless you are a right-wing extremist then the chances edge up a bit. I wouldn't call it exceedingly rare if you're an African American that you'll be the victim of a hate crime. The odds are about one in 5,000. That's horrible enough. And I can't tell people, anyone other than myself and maybe you, if you're deciding to opt into taking my advice, I can't tell you how to react to the troubling racism that is obviously prevalent in society. But I am kind of Jewish and my wife and children are definitely Jewish. And when their temple has programs, as they do, emphasizing the rise in anti-Semitism and anti-Semitic attacks, I don't tell my own family, I don't worry about that, ignore that, be blithe. I don't say that. Uh, These things happen. They should be noted. They certainly should be prosecuted. But I try to offer perspective. And I emphasize that while troubling, these incidents are far from prevalent. Jewish victims of hate crimes, they're about as third as many of those over the last decade as black victims of hate crimes. But the Jewish population is one seventh the black population, which means it's likelier for any one Jew to be targeted than any one African American. But still, and this is the key point, it is still very unlikely. And that is what I emphasize to my family. My only advice for yours is to take your own lessons according to your own instincts but informed by the best data. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is The Gist's assistant producer. Joel Patterson is The Gist's senior producer. Michelle Pasca came in fourth in the 2015 Louisiana jungle primary for senator. The Gist is produced in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash gist. Um Peru, Jiparu, Du Peru, and thanks for listening.